Hi, hi. Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, episode 16. Coffee in Asia. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. Here's a clip from our newest members episode on the history of tea. We left off last time with tea in 10th century China during the Song Dynasty. Tea had recently began its journey to become a global product, making its way to Japan in the form of matcha green tea powder. It was also during this period tea was made the national drink of China. Lu Yu's work, Chiching, did little to increase tea consumption but helped to create tea drinking as a cultural aspect of society. Tea preparation and consumption became ceremonial parts of Chinese culture. Picking which herbs you want to use for your tea, then packing them together, and even using the correct utensils and mountain stream water to brew your tea were all important steps in the process of making tea. And don't forget about how you drink your tea, as tea was now an experience which was meant to be social and often costly to partake in. Lu Yu's work was the answer to all of these new social dilemmas. See, he decided to write about tea after apparently walking into the woods and having a moment of deep contemplation, which led to an emotional breakdown, followed by tears. He then returned home and drank tea to comfort himself, deciding to write the Chiching, combining a spiritual component to tea drinking as a result. However, it is likely the Chiching was commissioned by a group of merchants who wanted to use the work as a way of advertising tea, along with its cultural and spiritual benefits. Lu Yu disagreed with adding flavorings such as ginger, orange peel, and peppermint to tea, and believed only salts and, in the case of children, onion root should be added to bitter tea. Tea drinking is often far less ceremonial in our modern society, yet it is still consumed by many in cafes and other sit-down places as things to be enjoyed. The lasting legacy of the Chiching can be felt most notably in Japan, which utilized it in the formation of Chanoyu, a tea-drinking ceremony which has turned tea into an art form. Tea fell out of favor in China during the Mongol Yun dynasty of the 13th and 14th centuries because tea was thought of as a symbol of decadence. Unless you are the Mongols. The foreign Mongols were kicked out, however, and tea returned under the Ming Dynasty, with a return to rule by native Chinese, and a shift back to traditional Chinese culture. This period of the Ming Dynasty, from 1368 to 1644, was when tea was first introduced to the West, correlating to the period of coffee's arrival in Europe. This time frame is important for modern tea preferences in the West because it was during this time tea experimentation was occurring. See, fermented green tea was the norm in China before this point, but during this time, tea was being made as fermented black tea, unfermented green tea, and semi-fermented tea, known as oolong. 
This period of time was sort of like a renaissance for tea, because more than simply a drink, it was now dominant in pop culture, literature, and art. It even took on an important place in everyday life, taking on a level of iconic symbol which had previously only been available in the case of religion. Looking to Japan, tea was said to have been discovered in Japan after a man... If you'd like to hear the rest, then head on over to Patreon and consider becoming a patron for the show to help us grow while also getting access to exclusive content for the price of a latte month. Joining us this episode, we have on two returning guests to the show, Ashley Novakowski and Julian Gunther. So we're going to be trying the Vietnamese iced coffee, Vietnamese iced coffee, and a Thai iced coffee to see the difference between the two. Um, for the Vietnamese iced coffee, we got a single origin Vietnam coffee from Starbucks. Um, and then Thai coffee is typically made as an instant coffee. It's a little bit harder to find. So that one we ended up getting from a local Thai restaurant. So we're basically going to try them together and sort of see if we can tell the difference. One's supposed to be a little bit sweeter than the other, but they both use sweetened condensed milk. So let's start with the Vietnamese one and see. All right, let's do this. <clears throat> That's pretty good. I can tell the sweetness on this one. <laughs> Definitely get a coffee, a coffee taste from it. Uh-huh. Like the sweetness isn't overpowering the coffee. I like the smell of the coffee when yeah. you're making it. You can't taste the coffee quite as much. Sweet and condensed no. milk kind of takes away. But it's from not some of the gone. Taste. No, it's a little roasty. It is roasty. Like, you know, when you go to Starbucks and you get a coffee from Starbucks, it's almost like sometimes. Like espresso, kind of? Yeah. Like, like when you get something like this, you can also, if it's like an ice something, you don't have as much of the coffee flavor, I guess, in the. The mix. This one has more of a coffee flavor to it, which I like a lot. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Miss Thailand? <laughs> I mean, it's comparable to the Thai uh, iced espressos that we were having. Um, yeah. I would say maybe the only difference is perhaps the method of which that we brewed it. Yeah, that um, is true. Which because, I feel like is coming through a little bit. Because this one we steeped and then um, usually you're going to use like a sock filter or something like that. We just use like a regular filter. Um, but it is being brewed a little bit different. Um, well, let's try the, the Thai one. All right. Oh, that's actually really sweet. So typically oh, the, geez. the Vietnamese <laughs> one yeah. should be sweeter because it's being made with straight condensed milk. Yeah. The Thai one's kind of cut with like evaporated milk or regular milk or cream or something. But it definitely came out a little bit stronger. I think this restaurant just makes it a little bit stronger with the sweet and condensed milk. But it's got a good flavor to it. And it tastes, it definitely it tastes different than it's the smoother. Vietnamese coffee. It's it is not, smoother. It's not roasty. <clears throat> it's like not roasty one, at all. It's a little bit more smooth. What's interesting is that the Vietnamese iced coffee tastes more comparable to the actual street. Yeah, if you were coffee. ordering like, like an was, iced Thai coffee over there, yeah, an that, iced espresso. Yeah, I would say this is feeling more comparable to what I've had at like a street market. So where they're so, using instant. I didn't try the Vietnamese iced coffee at that one cafe. Did you? Did you try it though? Mm-hmm. Like so, if you had Vietnamese iced coffee, do you feel mm-hmm. like this is more typical of what you're going to find in the U.S.? No, I feel like I see um, a lot of like more like this, where oh, it's like a heavy sweetener, but also a heavy like smooth cof- coffee taste. Oh, uh, so we kind of got a flip. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. this is more like street coffee in Thailand. Yeah, for sure. But I think that's pretty because it's easier to brew that way, right? E- either using an instant or ground. To be able to 
do that quickly mm-hmm. as a like coffee stand on the side yeah. of the road. So it's interesting too because what was it in Thailand? They don't have they don't what was what was it with the with the coffee in Thailand? They 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 don't um, ship it a lot. Well, so the local demand for coffee is so high that their export is really really low. Yeah. Um, or their international export. Yeah. Um, and since they have like coffee stands, like literally not even half a mile apart yeah, from each wow, other. So wow. there's such a high demand for it. Um, but to be able to do it quickly, this is, and this is what you're going to see. Yeah. And sweetened condensed milk doesn't need to be refrigerated. Whereas if you're trying to like cut things, that means now on your cart, you need to also have a fridge to keep mm, the other milk cold. So this is going to be way easier for like the average person to hurry up and whip together. This episode, we will be opening with the two major countries which we just covered in the history of tea, China and Japan. Both were primarily tea-drinking nations throughout history, yet today they have thriving coffee cultures. Let's start with China. Many people date coffee's arrival to China in the late 1800s when a French missionary introduced coffee to the Yunnan province of China. However, a recorded shipment in Shanghai from 1844 of, quote, five packages of Jaffe beans, end quote, seems to indicate an earlier date. Seven years later, we see the Xingcheng Cafe open in Shanghai. The cafe was originally an evening snack store, but became a full cafe a few years later. Even with coffee's introduction to China, it still took nearly a century for it to take off in the country. There was a bit of a surge in coffee's popularity after many Russians fled to China during the Russian Revolution. And for any curious about what was going on with coffee history in Russia around this time, or for anyone who may want a recap, you can find Russian coffee history in our Dawn of Revolution episode. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but today China is a massive consumer of coffee, especially with Starbucks taking off in China over the past few years. China also produces coffee of its own, with Yunnan acting as China's primary region for Arabica coffee. China's coffee history is relatively short and has only really taken off significantly in recent decades, but Japan has a bit of a longer history with coffee. Coffee was first introduced to Japan by the Dutch East Indian Company in the late 1600s. At this time, Japan was extremely isolated, only allowing the Dutch and later Portuguese on the artificially created island of Deshima. The only Japanese to drink coffee initially were prostitutes on the island who used it to keep themselves awake so their clients didn't leave without paying. It wasn't until the late 19th century coffee truly entered Japan, following the forced opening of Japan by America. One of the earliest coffee houses in Japan, Kahi Ichikan, was opened in 1888. Tsurukichi Nishimura modeled his new cafe after elite clubs in New York and London, hoping to create a place where artists and writers could gather to socialize, like in the West. All of this sounds great until you consider it only sold coffee, and so the owner eventually went bankrupt after only five years of operation from trying to afford keeping up such an elegant establishment with little revenue. Another coffee shop opened in 1911, Café Palista. 
the oldest coffee shop in Tokyo in continuous operation. It is believed to be the origin of all crusade, or Japanese cafes, as we would think of them today. I say as we would think of them today because, as we discussed in part two of our members' episode on the history of tea, cafes or tea drinking shops in Japan experienced a period of becoming places for gambling and alcohol consumption. So, with this shift towards traditional tea drinking created the opportunity to introduce cafes as a place for more traditional Zen tea and coffee drinking. This new cafe, Paulista, had a bit of a Brazilian origin. Remember in our episode on Latin America, we talked about the new coffee men in Sao Paulo who began industrializing Brazil in order to increase coffee exporting. To accomplish this, they began looking for immigrants to work the coffee plantations, which were mostly from Italy. When this plan eventually stopped working, they looked for immigrants elsewhere and found them in Japan. One of the main people to help support this was Mizuno Ryu, who went on to found Cafe Palista, and as a reward, he was given free coffee from Brazil. During the period of the 20th century, we also see Japanese immigrants working on coffee plantations in Hawaii. However, during much of this time, coffee was still very limited in Japan itself. It took until the 1960s for coffee restrictions to be lifted. Before this, coffee was often bought illegally through the black market. Coffee and Crescenten-style cafes quickly took off after this all over the country. Customers could watch newsreels or experience live singers at many shops, while others offered 24-7 service with private spaces, which became popular for prostitutes and criminals. During the 80s, Crescenten-style cafes with waitstaff began to face a divide with the introduction of Western-style self-service cafes. Still, many preferred traditional Japanese-style cafes with their siphon coffee makers, special mesh filters, and origin-specific coffee beans, such as those from Kilimanjaro. As we will cover as we approach closer to our modern day, Cafes of all kinds, both in Japan and around the world, would eventually face competition with at-home coffee making, instant coffee, and bottled coffee. But some pushback by cafes will come from the introduction of specialty coffee, largely brought on by Starbucks. Japan is also a massive importer of coffee beans and one of the most significant coffee consumers in the world. Globally, Japan has the third biggest revenue generated from coffee. Looking to Southeast Asia, we find Indonesia. While Japan is the fourth largest coffee consumer in the world, Indonesia is the fourth largest producer of coffee. The history of coffee in Indonesia is largely tied to colonialism. As we talked about previously, the Dutch colonized Indonesia, in part to feel their desire to consume and trade coffee. But how did they get coffee to the island of Indonesia? If you remember, the Dutch stole coffee from Yemen in 1616, but this plant did not have the success they had hoped for. However, in the mid-17th century, the Netherlands took control of Ceylon, or Sri Lanka as it's known today, from Portugal. This allowed them a monopoly on the cinnamon trade, but it also gave them access to coffee that was being grown there. 
the Dutch took this coffee back to the Amsterdam Botanical Garden to be cultivated, later planting the seeds in India on the Malabar coast. Taking the seeds from Malabar to Batavia in the Dutch East Indies, they planted coffee seeds, but were unsuccessful due to flooding around 1696. However, a second attempt in Java three years later would lead to much greater success. Around the start of the 18th century, Indonesian coffee was becoming massively popular on the Amsterdam Exchange. I don't want to cover too much of Indonesia's coffee history, as we already talked about it in more depth on our Coffee Overseas episode, but I will hit a couple of highlights. The great success of coffee in the Dutch East Indies led coffee to spread to Bali, Timor, Sulawesi, and Sumatra. Indonesian coffee was largely the main reason for the decline of coffee out of the Middle East from the port of Mocha. In 1808, the Great Post Road was constructed, connecting Anyer through Panarukan. This allowed for the mobilization of troops, but also for the transportation of coffee. All of this came to a climax in 1876, when coffee leaf rust hit the islands of Indonesia. They attempted to solve this by importing the Liberica coffee varietal from West and Central Africa, but Brazil was able to overtake them by this point. A second leaf rust epidemic hit in 1907, which led to the introduction of Robusta coffee, which is still largely used today. And a Christopher Columbus exhibition held in Chicago in 1893. There was a Java village which was serving coffee from Java. The people at the exhibition were so impressed they began calling it a cup of java, which has led to our modern use of the word to be synonymous with coffee. When the Dutch left Indonesia, they returned the coffee plantations to the locals. However, Indonesia's true independence would come after World War II. Colonialism had a big impact on Indonesia, with the Netherlands implementing the Dutch collection system which more or less enslaved many Indonesians to work on coffee plantations, like serfs of the feudalism system in medieval Europe. However, today, Indonesian coffee is grown primarily by local farmers, with the dominant strain being robusta as a result of leaf rust. Much of their coffee is processed using the gilling bashram method, which involves depulping the coffee bean from the cherry and then drying it on a patio. The final product brings out earthy and spicy flavors. For any curious, I did a coffee tasting of Sumatra coffee on our Coffee Overseas episode, where we covered Indonesia in Wind. Indonesia is home to the civet cat, or Kopi Luwak, which, if you remember, produces the most expensive bag of coffee in the world through the process I referred to as cat poop coffee. But other countries in Southeast Asia also have animals which can produce a similar product. Vietnam, for example, has a weasel which can reduce the bitterness of coffee, similar to the Kopi Luwag, after digesting the coffee bean and pooping it out. Thailand has elephants which do the same thing, and on a side note, you can actually make paper out of elephant poop as well, as I did when I was in Thailand last year. Maybe Ethiopia will take a page out of their books and soon start using goats to consume coffee for the same effect. So next, we will move north and talk about Vietnam. Coffee arrived in Vietnam the same way it arrived in much of Southeast Asia, through colonialism. 
It was introduced by French missionaries in 1857, with the original coffee beans being Arabica. The French had hoped to create a coffee outpost in Vietnam. Although it was moderately successful, it wasn't until the 1900s Robusta beans made their way to the country's central highlands. The climate of the region, mixed with the soil, provided optimal coffee-growing conditions. Over the decades, the industry would bloom and plantations would spring up all over the Dak Lok province and its surrounding areas. Following the war in Vietnam between the communists and the democrats backed by the US, only 148 acres of coffee remained. Following the war, the government hoped to grow stability in the country by encouraging some in the north to move to the central highlands to grow coffee. Mass deforestation occurred as a result, and this new coffee production was largely exported to their allies in the Soviet bloc. But the country was still a minor producer in coffee at this time. What really propelled Vietnam onto the world stage were the Doi Moi economic reforms in 1987. This greatly opened the country for trade, and it wouldn't be long before Vietnam would overtake Colombia in coffee output. This would make Vietnam the world's second largest coffee exporter. These reforms also led to around 90% of Vietnam's coffee plantations today being operated by small farm owners. Currently, Vietnam is responsible for around 20% of the world's total coffee production. As well as producing 40% of the world's robusta beans, Vietnam exports over 1.6 metric tons of coffee a year. Let us move a little over west. Sitting between Thailand and Vietnam, we find Laos. This country, which sits in the same part of the equator as Vietnam, is perfect for coffee growing. Coffee first arrived around 1915, with the French who first brought it over. They attempted to grow coffee in the northern part of the country, but had little success. So they moved south and found the climate was much better for coffee production. The region which became most ideal was the Belavan Plateau, where rich soil and high mountains make it an ideal location for coffee, even to this day. Laos has been encouraging Arabica coffee in recent decades as many in the country rely on coffee for their income. But much of this reliance on coffee came after the government hoped to switch from its former source of income, opium. After the Opium War of 1967, the government wanted to find a new revenue source. Finally, in 1998, the government began burning all of the opium fields in the country down. While the South had rice and coffee, the North had no crop to grow now. But innovation in coffee growing allowed shade-grown coffee to be a successful crop in the north, allowing the nation to grow more coffee and made way for Laos's modern cafe culture. Next up, we have Thailand, sitting on the western border of Laos. Bangkok City, Thailand. Thailand's history with coffee begins in the early 1900s, but wasn't popular until the 1970s. King Bumabol Adulidet introduced coffee to northern Thailand when the war on drugs led him to reconsider their main, albeit illegal, export at the time, opium. Opium at the time was the highest export between Thailand, Myanmar, and Laos, also known as the Golden Triangle. Back in Thailand, Thai farmers began growing Arabica beans in the north around Chiang Mai due to the low humidity and high rainfall. 
Chiang Mai has become known as Thailand's coffee capital. However, they have expanded to grow both Arabica and Robusta beans. Direct trade and fair trade have gained a lot of popularity in Thailand in order to keep coffee sustainable and supportive to local Thais. Thais love their coffee, and there has been a huge push for more sustainable and eco-friendly practices across the country. The local demand drinks up almost all of its production, so very little of the coffee is actually exported. In 2015-2016, Thailand exported half a million 60-kilogram bags of coffee, while the domestic consumption was 1.2 million bags. Since the demand for coffee is so high, many of the farmers are younger, more motivated to market with social media, and more experimental with various processing methods, such as honey processing. However, the challenge is that Thailand cannot compete in the international market due to high import tariffs and forest conservation laws. Currently, I live in Bangkok, where I can see the intense demand for coffee houses. The love for coffee with Instagrammable aesthetics and delicious food has spread everywhere. It has led to cafe hopping as a popular way to spend your afternoon. From what I've observed, coffee culture has become a major way of life in Bangkok, with its close connections to Instagram and social media influencers. However, there are still many coffee shops that still sell Café Baron, an ancient coffee which is a mix of Arabica and Robusta beans that became popular during World War II when coffee became scarce and expensive. Jumping a little further west, we find India and its long history with the bean. Coffee's history outside of the Islamic world began in India. Earlier in the show, we talked about Baba Budin and his theft of coffee beans from Mocha, which he brought back to India and planted on the hill named after the revered holy figure today. But this was around 1670, so what happened in India after this event? Well, unfortunately, we have little to no information on what happened immediately after, but there was likely coffee grown by local Indian farmers around the area of Baba Budin Hill. However, we do know around a century later, the British began taking control of the country. By this time, England had developed a love of coffee, as well as many other European nations. So they began a process of deforesting the area to make way for coffee plantations in India. And in fact, they began growing coffee in India even before tea. In 1858, the British Empire took direct control of India, implementing a new government known as the British Raj. Coffee production was largely Arabica until the end of the 19th century, when the coffee leaf rust epidemic, which began out of Sri Lanka, struck India. Today they grow Arabica and Robusta, as well as hybrids, many of which are only grown in India, which help to prevent coffee leaf rust. Much of India's coffee is grown under shade trees, and the southern part of India is said to have the best shade-grown coffee in the world. Today, the country is the seventh largest producer of coffee in the world. While this concludes our episode on coffee history in Asia, we will still have much more to talk about with coffee history in the East as we progress towards coffee in our modern day. Next episode, we will be doing a sort of part two on coffee history in Asia with a special episode on the Philippines. 
And after that, we will return to our main story as we approach the war to end all wars. I speak, of course, of the coming First World War. This show is written and produced by me, Eric Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte month, you can support this and future projects within the series, while also getting access to members-only episodes, transcripts of the show, and a chance to win prizes. This month, I will be giving away a bag of Vietnamese coffee along with cans of sweetened condensed milk to four of our members to try Vietnamese iced coffee at home. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you'd like to contact us, you can message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, and make sure to share it with your family and friends. To close, here is a quote from Thomas Tyrone's The Good Housewife Made a Doctor. In a word, coffee is the drunkard's settle brain, the fool's pastime, who admires it for being the product of Asia.